inside the defence lab leading the fight against COVID-19. It's really pushing science as an industry to their limits to develop all these new ways of working and new tests to meet the demands that the country needs. Dunkirk remembered 80 years on. But out of the fog and the mist shrouding the channel came a strange armada of Navy craft, fishing boats, pleasure yachts, anything that would float. And how gaming is helping the U.S. Army recruit. There's a, an akin to the camaraderie that comes around service, just like there's a camaraderie in gaming. I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP. Over the last few months, we've been hearing how people working across the defence world have been called on to help combat COVID-19. Scientists at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down have been using their expertise to look at how the virus behaves and to support the government's testing programme. Laura Macon-Isherwood was given rare access to the laboratories in Wiltshire. Behind barbed wire on Salisbury Plain sits the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. High security, attached to the MOD, it's always been shrouded with a certain level of mystery. We are going into the level three. At the forefront of research and development for national security and defence, DSTL staff do the science no one else can. Primed to respond to any national catastrophe, the latest COVID-19. We were invited behind the scenes to take a look. This is where we're handling pathogens such as plague, Um, anthrax uh, and the virus that causes COVID-19. With more than 20 years' experience of chemical, biological and radiological cases, Tim, a professor, is one of the scientists working with the new coronavirus. He took us into the corridor at the heart of DSTL's search for knowledge, labs held under negative air pressure to prevent anything leaving them that shouldn't, 80 microbiologists working in this arm of DSTL alone. Probably one of the biggest capabilities in terms of handling dangerous pathogens in the United Kingdom, um, and that makes us uh, reasonably unique. And this facility here is specifically is the one where we are currently doing the experiments with COVID-19. The scientists we spoke to wanted only their first names to be used. They exercise caution when looking at the virus, COVID-19 cultures handled in sealed glove boxes. Their findings are key to the nation moving through this pandemic. We're doing a variety of of tests, but really they centre around characterising the virus itself, how it behaves, for example, when it deposits on surfaces, how long does it survive. That sort of information is used in modelling uh, that SAGE used to determine and advise what the government response will be going forwards. With the government increasing the number of COVID-19 tests over the last few months, DSTL staff were deployed across the country to help meet demand. Emma was one of them. It's really pushing, I think, um, science as an industry to their limits to develop all these new uh, ways of working and new tests and, and to kind of keep um, evolving to meet the demands that the country needs. DSTL staff are not only at the forefront of scientific research, they're pushing boundaries in robotics and autonomy too. So our job is to think out of the box. Peter Stockell is DSTL's autonomous systems lead. His staff are tasked with finding ways to improve safety for both the public and the military. Defending maritime assets against things like a fast and short patrol craft threat, um, unmanned air systems, we have un- unmanned air systems operational now, and we haven't had for a while, but also for the army, how do we get supplies right down to the front line in combat situations, for example, which is quite a dangerous mission. Their innovative approaches have been called upon in the coronavirus response too. 
staff designing ways to decontaminate ambulances in just minutes after it was reported to be taking too long, and when a national shortage of the bitter and sweet-tasting sprays needed to test the fit of face masks looked imminent, DSTL scientists found a way to plug the gap overnight. Tim asked me to take a mask, as he explained. So I, if I was working with somebody with COVID-19, would put this on, tighten up the straps, and then that solution, if I could taste it, it would mean that there was an issue with this fit. Yes. And we, to date, have manufactured about 21,000 units. And I'm reliably told that those solutions have enabled capabilities like the London Nightingale Hospital um, to become operational. With a string of national crises raising DSTL's profile of late, new buildings being built, expertise being harnessed by the government, the work of these labs looks set to remain in demand. That was Laura Macon-Isherwood reporting. Well, in another development, personnel from the Ministry of Defence are working with the NHS on a database to help understand the behaviour of the virus and its spread across the country. The Times Defence editor Lucy Fisher told me more about it. Well, the idea behind this is that um, a range of um, academics, universities and private companies um, have tried to um, capture some of the information about symptoms for COVID-19 by creating apps And because there are so many millions of data points on these disparate apps, um, the MOD came up with the idea of merging them onto a single database that could be used by government-linked epidemiologists who can use that data to better track and understand the virus. Yeah, tell me a bit more about how many apps and where it's all coming from then. Well, there are 10 apps that have so far been um, onloaded to this platform, which is called Oasis. They're all very different. Some are quite simple. So one is called Inc. C19. That just asks two very basic questions. It asks the user to note their location and how they're feeling, and then it maps that information onto a heat map. Um, I spoke to Stephen Winyard, who um, is uh, the chief marketing officer of the company behind this app. It's totally not for profit. And he just explained that when the, um, the outbreak started, his mother's based away from him in Wolverhampton. He has other family based in Wales. He wanted to learn about the situation on the ground there in a very localised sense, just to kind of understand the sort of local context that his own family um, was facing in terms of the, um, the pandemic. And that's why he created that app. Some of them are a bit more sophisticated. Um, There's another app called Track Together, which asks the user to uh, answer 16 questions, as well as symptoms. It asks about behaviour, mood, age. That's had 20,000 responses. So a lot of data there for for the government to use if it's onloaded for the NHS. Uh, And there's a wealth of other apps too. And Lucy, when you're collating all this data, how do you protect people's privacy? Well, that's a very good question. I think that's one reason that NHSX, the digital and technology branch uh, of the health service, has asked the MOD to come in here uh, and ensure that, A, all the apps that they've asked to participate, um, making sure that they adhere with digital health technology standards. But the military um, technologists involved are very carefully ensuring that um, all the data collected is anonymised, so you can't link it back to um, individual patients or or British citizens. 
and, and, and ensuring that it meets all sorts of data standards. And Lucy, in news beyond COVID-19, Donald Trump has threatened to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty, which allows 35 countries, including the UK, to send unarmed observer flights over each other's territory to collect data on troop deployments and military facilities. Donald Trump says Russia has failed to comply. Our relationship with Russia has come a long way in the last few months. I think that the open sky will all work out. But right now, when you have an agreement and the other side doesn't adhere to the agreement, we're not going to adhere to it either. But I think something very positive will work out. But Stefan Dujaric, who speaks for the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has warned of a new arms race. I think we can't stress enough that this arms control regime has provided security benefits for the entire international community by constraining strategic arms competition. Ending such agreements without anything to replace them could result in destabilizing activities such as a dangerous new arms race. Lucy, Russia says there have been no violations, but the US argues Russia has been preventing access to certain areas. Yes, well, we heard Mark Esper, the US Defence Secretary, in March um, tell a congressional committee that Russia had um, defied the terms of the treaty by refusing a a short-notice reconnaissance flight over the Baltic exclave of Kaliningrad between Lithuania and Poland and in the border of Russia near Georgia. So the US um, is accusing Russia of having violated the terms of the treaty and using that as the justification for leaving it. It certainly rattles NATO allies that Washington is planning to quit the treaty. So just how significant would the US withdrawal be? Well, I think it is very significant. Russia has said so far in a riposte to the US that it will remain in the treaty. Ten European states have also vowed to uphold it. Very striking that there's silence from the UK so far. You know, we haven't joined the joint statement signed by Germany and France saying we're still willing to stay in the treaty. But To be honest, without the US, it really is hugely compromised. I think it's an incredibly important concept of confidence building and military transparency, allowing these short notice uh, unarmed reconnaissance flights. And um, and it remains to be seen if if the whole treaty will just crumble now. That was the Times defence editor Lucy Fisher speaking to me earlier. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, joins me now. Christopher, uh, last year the US pulled out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. Uh, Before that, it was the Iran nuclear deal. Is it the case that treaties of this nature are just going by the wayside as far as the US is concerned? President Trump has actually said he thinks the Open Skies Policy Treaty, for example, is going to be okay. What does he mean by that, Christopher? Well, I think he means that probably it will just sort of sit there, no violations of it, and it will get sorted at a later date. A lot of these treaties, you've got to remember, they're bilateral treaties between Russia and America, and the rest of us are sort of left out of it. The Open Skies Treaty is different. There are 35 members and others trying to get in. How important is this treaty? It's sort of important in as much that it says, I've got an airplane, I'll give you a warning, I'm just going to fly over your country and have a look at, see what I can photograph. The other thing that's important, you can now sit in a space station just 250 miles above the Earth, and you can photograph everything, and you can get really good photographs. And so the, the technology is changing. 
And I think that's really what Trump really means about, uh, oh, well, it'll be, it will be all right. You, you mentioned the capability of being able to see from, from space and see an awful lot from space. America, they have satellites unlike any other country. They do. They have one problem at the moment, of course, and that's a continual problem. And that's actually being able to tend them and put new satellites into, into space. And because the Americans haven't had for some time uh, a way of launching into space. I mean, if you want to send an American astronaut into space, you have to call up the, the Russians and say, can we hitch a ride on your, uh, with your cosmonauts? And that's exactly what's happened for the past nine and a half years. Yeah, talking of bilateral agreements. Uh, Christmas, stay with us. This is Zitrap. Now, it's 80 years this week since the evacuation of more than 330,000 British and Allied troops from the beaches at Dunkirk. The operation captured the imagination of the wartime British and the term Dunkirk spirit, meaning fighting through adversity, has entered the lexicon. Tim Cooper assesses the impact of Dunkirk 80 years ago. One of the greatest disasters in history seemed in the making. An entire British army faced annihilation. But out of the fog and the mist shrouding the channel came a strange armada of Navy craft, fishing boats, pleasure yachts, anything that would float. I'm watching a film from the US National Archives designed to explain to an American audience the significance of the Dunkirk evacuation. And as you would expect, it, it tells the story in a way we know. Defeat turned around. And it is most certainly agreed by most historians that the evacuation was vital for Britain's ability to continue the Second World War. John Delaney is from the Imperial War Museum. In terms of uh, its import strategic importance, I think it's fair to say that if the BEF had been forced to surrender in, in large part uh, at Dunkirk, the war would have in effect been over uh, for, for the United Kingdom because it would not have been able to stay in the war its entire professional army, all of its tanks, its heavy equipment was all in France. If all of that went, all the manpower, all the professional trained manpower went, there was virtually nothing left. Over 330,000 troops made it back to the UK. From the ashes of the British Expeditionary Force, a new army could be built that could fight on. Yet 80 years on, it's worth looking back to how Dunkirk was viewed at the time, certainly before its positive portrayal became the dominant view. Dr George Hayes from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We shouldn't forget that you know this is evacuation that is following what can only be described as a comprehensive defeat uh, of the combined Allied armies. In Churchill's famous, I think it's Fourth of June speech in the Commons, where you know his his people will know it for his remarks about fighting on the beaches and the landing grounds. But in that, he makes it really clear a number of times that this is not a victory. So he says, you, I think he, we must be careful or very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Um, wars are not won by evacuations. Understandably, we focus on those who made it off the beaches, but plenty had to stay to enable that to happen. George Hay again. Allowing the last of the British and French forces to evacuate um, are 40,000 Frenchmen holding the perimeter of Dunkirk, uh, who were then forced to surrender on, on the 4th of June. So... The, the success of the, evac of the evacuation owes a lot to the French as well as anything else you might say about the British. Hello, my name is Norman Lewis. I'm a sapper in the Royal Engineers, 212 Company it was, and I'm now 100 years old. Norman was also left behind and, as he describes, captured. We thought they were friendly. They saw us and they shouted, come on, Tommy, come over here. 
When we got close to, we realized they were Germans. We dropped to the ground, they opened fire, we opened fire. And after about five minutes, I felt a prod in back of my neck, stand up, for you the war is over. Norman had to endure the war as a prisoner in terrible conditions. A lot of prisoners did die, a lot killed themselves. We got lice, the beds were 60 men to a three-tier platform, not the same as you see on the television, a single bunk. There were 20 men per layer. Those on the top were, 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 were the lucky ones. Those underneath got all the dirt, the lice falling through, and the urine, because you, you couldn't go to the toilet. At this time of commemoration, we remember those who lost their lives during the Dunkirk evacuation. British and Empire troops from Cyprus and India, French and Belgian personnel. There are Commonwealth war graves spread across the entire area, from small churchyards to larger sites, and there's a memorial to the 4,500 who have no known grave. As with so many parts of history, the Dunkirk evacuation has one relatively simple main narrative, but thousands of complex individual stories to be remembered 80 years on. That was Tim Cooper reporting. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still with us. Um, Christopher, um, just explain the actions of the Germans on the ground over those days at Dunkirk. It was always puzzling to the British uh, uh, high command later on. On the 23rd of May, uh, General uh, Rundstedt, who commanded the German army group Alpha, called off the attack on the troops that were heading for Dunkirk. Hitler said, yeah, OK, I agree with that. What we'll do, we'll let the Luftwaffe mop them up on the beaches. Now, the Luftwaffe had been fighting sort of flat out for three weeks and they were absolutely sort of tired out. And so they changed it. Now, why would they have, if you like, let 300,000 people off? The answer is probably Hitler thought if the British went back to the UK, they wouldn't come back again. And that would have been the British out of the war. Yeah, it's a fascinating thought. And you yourself have a personal connection with Dunkirk, don't you? Well, I do. My old man, my pa, he could easily have been in the 4,000 that didn't make it back. He'd been shot up quite badly. He was on the beach. He'd been shot up quite badly. And what you've got to imagine is that in the shallow water, you've got these rowing boats, which have to row soldiers out to trawlers, etc., which then eventually row them out to destroyers to get them back to the UK. And uh, Pop sort of got into this boat and he was bleeding over the whole of the British Army. I mean, he was so wounded. And he thought that what happened, they thought, well, this guy's not going to make it to the next stage. And he was gently tipped over the side and back into the water. And there he was flapping around in the water as best he could when this boat took a direct hit. All gone. And he was picked up by somebody else who, because there is in the water, they didn't realise how badly wounded he was. Put him in another boat. He got back to the UK and the Navy saved his life on the way back in a destroyer. I said to him, uh, that was hard luck, wasn't it? And he said, no, but you start feeling the guilt thing. Why shouldn't I have been in the boat? Now, Christopher, the First Sea Lord, Admiral Tony Radikin, said this week that the Dunkirk spirit has been in evidence in the way the nation has come together recently. Would you concur with that? I'm not sure I would. It's such a different thing. If you think wartime, we're getting bombed. This is the first time, really, that the British, as a nation, have been bombed at home. Yes, you've got that sort of spirit, let's all got to pull together. It was a sense of hopelessness. You know, Churchill say this is not a victory. We have been chased home. We have been chased out of Europe. Incidentally, I skippered one of these boats much later on, many years later on, obviously. Uh, and you can put it into a port and people just come down and stare at it. 
uh, the wren and say, how many people did you have on board? I had to explain that I was a bit young for that sort of thing. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was my dad that was there, not me. <laughs> it, it was interesting that you, you can sail one of those things in and a little plaque on the front of the boat which says, I was there, is probably quite astonishing to the onlooker who who knows little of the history. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been hearing on the programme how countries affected by the pandemic are slowly easing restrictions on daily life. Germany's starting to roll back some, but not all, of its lockdown measures, while Gibraltar's parliament is meeting for the first time in two months. And there's positive news too from Brunei, as Curtis Tyler explains. Some fantastic news for all of the personnel on board the latest flight back to Brunei from the UK. Every single passenger has completed their quarantine and a second COVID-19 test. Every result came back negative, so everybody can now reintegrate themselves back into the BFB community. Perfect timing as well, because the Brunei Ministry of Health have released what they're calling phase one of lifting restrictions. This means that we have seen earlier this week the opening of some restaurants, cafes, sporting facilities, including gyms, as well as some children's play areas as well. This has been mirrored by British Forces Brunei with some uh, facilities within the the garrison reopening or with their own individual rules and regulations to make sure everybody is staying safe. It's a really good position in Brunei at the minute. For the past fortnight, there have been zero new cases of COVID-19. So it looks like things are on a positive turn and looking good for the future. That update there from Curtis Tyler. The rifle versus the SMG form is down but not planted, and it's in the eyeline of Nash here. He's playing it very safe. He's waiting the power to make the mistake. Commentary there on the game Call of Duty. Gaming is, of course, massively popular, and now the US Army is turning to the skilled gamers in its ranks in an attempt to boost recruitment at a time when coronavirus makes careers, fairs, and outreach difficult. The Army esports team compete full time and are organising large online tournaments where they meet prospective soldiers. Well, Sergeant First Class Chris Jones is the US Army esports team general manager. It is really telling a new story through the passion of gaming. And it really kind of showcases what's underneath the uniform and who inhabits this organization. Because somebody just kind of look at the U.S. Army as just an organization and sometimes don't understand that the people that make up this organization are just like a normal person. They have exactly the same hobbies. They love the same things as anyone else. They just have a different chosen profession. And how does it compare to a normal careers fair as a recruitment tool, do you think, in terms of numbers? It's comparable in the sense of when you go to a large event and you have tens of thousands of people, for example, obviously it's much different in the way of uh, your normal career fair in the digital age uh, where we're streaming online, whether it's Twitch or Mixer or YouTube or even Facebook, we're engaging with people in groups and it gives them the opportunity and, you know, an open platform. So then anyone can ask those questions that they may have not asked normally. And we're able to give them those authentic and genuine answers from an actual soldier. And are you persuaded that this is actually leading to people signing up? I do. The reason is, from my experience being a recruiter and even a station commander, when you're talking with people and they, you know, for example, come in the office, it can feel a little bit intimidating sometimes. And it takes a little bit of time for someone to warm up to that recruiter, that station commander about, you know, the questions they want to know. 
And the really cool thing about this is that we already are able to connect on a shared passion. We already have a basic level of understanding to one another. We both enjoy the same things. So it feels more comfortable to talk to someone like that and be able to you know, ask those burning questions that you're looking to, to have answered. I mean, some people sometimes think of gaming as being quite an, an individual kind of thing, isolated in your bedroom doing it. Are you saying it's not that at all? There is a big community just like you get in the armed forces? Absolutely. It's, it is definitely not what people may assume to be. For example, the, one of the games I've been playing for the longest time was World of Warcraft. I played it since it, it came out originally. So it's almost 15 years. And I've met people, I've played with people for over a decade and I've never met them but I have a human connection to them as I would with anyone that I've met face to face. And there's a, an akin to the camaraderie that comes around service, just like there's a camaraderie in gaming. And as a recruiter, is there a particular game, if you have a gamer who is very good at that game, that turns into a good army soldier? The very unique thing about gamers at large is that just like a soldier, they don't really fit in the box. That's why on my team, we have soldiers that are information technology soldiers, which you would say that absolutely makes sense. But then you say, well, now I have this infantry soldier. And then I also have a special forces operator, Green Beret, on my team, who has been playing games majority of, of his life. A lot of people that will absolutely surprise them. But to me, that doesn't surprise me at all. Gamers can't do something. No, that's quite the opposite. We definitely can do something and we can definitely excel at it. That was Sergeant Chris Jones. Well, Wing Commander Dan Penter is chairman of the RAF Video Gaming and Esports Association, which has been going for just over a year and has around 850 serving players. The Army team has more than 800 people. I asked him whether our armed forces could learn from the US example. There's definitely uh, potential for it. Both the British Army and the Royal Air Force uh, already use esports as part of their engagement activities not not necessarily for recruiting, uh, but certainly to make contact with general public and show them that, that military uh, personnel are just like them in terms of their, their um, gaming. What do you think, I mean, if you, if you were to recruit gamers, what particular qualities do they have if you can generalise? To, to actually be successful in online gaming, you, you need to do, develop uh, teamwork, uh, leadership skills, some sort of fast-switch muscle requirements, uh, and also thinking well under pressure. So... Uh, all of those things are things that the, the military would value highly and, and aim to trade into our people. Additionally, some of the technical skills they pick up, uh, the Royal Air Force has got very technically complex machines uh, and systems. Uh, and actually, uh, the, the sort of interest that gamers have lend themselves to that as well. Your, your video gaming at Esports Association hasn't been going that long, has it? What, what has it brought to the armed forces since you've had it? We're generating a community uh, and with the RAF's approaching it from a welfare point of view create a community for people we know are out there who already play games uh, and then start some competitions. Um, and that, that's really what we're about. I suppose at, the, at this time, it's particularly useful to have that kind of bonding, that, that alternative kind of sport, which means you can do it with social distancing. Yeah, I certainly like to tell some of my, uh, my peers from, from real sports that uh, we're one of the few associations that hasn't had to uh, re reduce our operations as a result of, as a result of covid uh, in fact, if anything, it's got busier, uh, lots of online fundraising uh, and also competitions. So at the moment, are you mainly concentrating on what you can do within the armed forces rather than reaching out to potential new recruits? 
my, my team certainly is concentrating on growing the, the gaming groups within the Air Force. Recruitment selection from RAF Cranwell have asked us to go to events with them, not to actually go recruiting as such, just be there and be playing games and enjoying ourselves, and really just to show the general public that you can also do gaming whilst you're in the military. Are people surprised by that? Very surprised, yes. Uh, last August, we went to a big show called Insomnia at uh, the NEC, yeah, we, we played at competitions, we met loads of people, it was really good fun. How, how do military gamers rank compared to civilians? In general, we don't have the time to put into becoming your top tier pro gamers because we, we've got uh, day <laughs> jobs. Um, that said, uh, some of our newest recruits are some of our best players because they've, they've been putting time into it before they join. So I'm ever hopeful of picking up uh, a semi-pro standard player as they enter the Air Force. We're certainly competing at grassroots level within the UK. A couple of teams already competing that way. Okay, so we, we've just uh, been speaking to Sergeant Jones about what he's been up to in the esports world. Um, how do you think you would fare against him, his team? Well, for the, for the Air Force, it's early days yet. Um, I, I don't think we'd be quite at their standard. They've got some full-time players there. Um, I've actually been watching them with, with interest. The Army took a team across last year. Um, I think they lost, uh, but certainly I'm sure we'd all be up for an inter-services rematch at some point. That was Wing Commander Dan Penter there. Uh, Christopher Lee, it's an interesting way of improving recruitment or at least widening the net, isn't it? The thing about people in the services, they're not boring. The thing about gamers, they're not boring. They don't fit in a box, do they? That's what we're being told. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. I was with a couple of people last night. One was Navy and one was RAF. And what we were doing, we were sitting in the middle of the English Channel and we were looking for the launch of the spacecraft, the commercial spacecraft, which didn't happen because of the weather. I was talking about uh, what you do to, to keep somebody in the services nowadays. Now, this is all part of the gaming thing, isn't it? You always have to move on. You talk to kids about what are you playing now. They're always talking about getting the next one or the next, next way to play or next somebody else to play with or another group. Gaming's great. It's great. It's, I, I, I just live with my dog and uh, sort of take it very easily. He can sn- Mind you, he can sniff a, a storm two hours away. Yeah, and that is it for this week. Thank you to you, Christopher, and to all of our guests this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>